another episode of classic gaming brothers i'm zach and i'm seth and we're the classic gaming brothers we are the classic gaming brothers we are for our american listeners happy fourth of july if you're listening to this on sunday so in a very small window of time it will be the fourth of july which for those who are listening from abroad is the day America was born. It is America's birthday. Speaking of birthdays, Seth, the day we're recording this is Sonic's 30th birthday. Ooh, Sonic's and America's birthday all in the same time continuum. And Quake's birthday was yesterday on oh, the 22nd. Quake. Quake Look and at Sonic. all these birthdays happening. There's a lot of birthdays. A lot of things were born in the summer. America, Sonic, and Quake. Those are the three things that make someone free that's 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 true in no other country do you get all three at once except in america and uh for our listeners out there zach and i we were very pumped about doing a fourth of july themed episode but we felt at the stage of our podcast relationship with our listeners that we're not at that level where we need to do an episode on every holiday yet except for halloween and christmas so yeah so in we're not going to do an episode well you know what the episode's about since you can read or i assume you can read so anyway we are not doing a fourth of july episode but we still enjoy having the day off from work for america's birthday so uh zach what have you been playing recently seth i've been playing the letter v six times um, which is stylized as v v v v v v if you go to purchase it on steam the letter v six times is a indie game released in january 2010 by terry cavanaugh uh, you can find it on steam and i think good old games and pretty much all the major retails for online games uh it's a game where you play a character named captain viridian who is this kind of like stick figure like figure and they are part of a space crew of similar designed characters and those characters all get separated when a teleporter malfunctions causing them to get launched into the dimension the letter v six times so the game is really interesting because you're exploring these mazes looking for your lost crewmates And as you explore these mazes, it's kind of like a platform game, but it's different than most platform games where you have the complete inability to jump. Instead, the only buttons you can use are the arrow keys and the ability to invert the direction of gravity. So you can either 
walk on the ceiling or walk on the wall, which means that you kind of have to coordinate yourself around these mazes and make sure that your timing falls correctly, falling onto platforms in the right place, and overall just kind of manipulating gravity for your character in a way to get you to where you need to be. Uh, For example, one of my favorite maps um, does something that's kind of familiar to people who might have played Pac-Man, where if you go through one of the doors at the edge of the screen in a Pac-Man map, you end up on the other side of the screen, where the letter v6 times does this for like a full scale map where um you fall through the bottom of the screen you end up at the top of the screen and you have to kind of like avoid obstacles on both sides when you're going back and forth um so it it can be a very complicated game at times it can be a very hard game at times but it's a very fun game overall and it's also a really well-designed game in terms of the graphics and the music. The music is all kind of chiptune music, very similar to what you might find on a Commodore 64. Or in the intro of our podcast. Or in the intro of our podcast. But the reason I say Commodore 64 is because the overall graphical design of the game is influenced by Commodore 64 games to the point where when you launch the game, it literally loads a screen that looks like the Commodore uh, tape loading screen where it shows the boot screen of a Commodore 64 and like flickering lights in the background. Oh, which is that's what, fun. Yeah, the which is what the C64 did for tape loading. So that's the game I've been playing. Seth, what about you? So you went back to 2010 to play your game. I went back to good old year 2000. I was playing and still playing a game called Deus Ex Game of the Year Edition, which was uh, developed by Ion Storm and originally published by Eidos, but is in Steam as published by Square Enix because Square Enix bought Eidos. So it was originally released June 22nd of the year 2000. Uh, so six months after the world ended. Yeah, that was a really dated Y2K joke. <laughs> yeah, it was. It is a action role-playing game because in the game there is action and also leveling and thus action role-playing. There's also branching storylines. So I guess you can say that's also part of the role-playing. So in the game, you play as a character who goes by the name of J.C. Denton, and he has a brother named Paul. And you, J.C. Denton is actually his code name. So you can actually write up his real name. And so my character, his real name is not J.C. Denton. No one will ever know who he is because he's the opposite of his code name. The game takes place in 2052 which is the future, not far off from where we are today. J.C. Denton works for UNATCO, which is the United Nations Anti-Terrorist Coalition. And J.C. Denton is one of the first modified with nanotechnology so that he can have superhuman abilities. In In the world of Deus Ex, it's a little punky where people have like augmentation so they have like cyber limbs or they have like optical implants and you you can change those around but your character has nanotechnology so you have little robots instead of having your limb chopped off and replaced with a robotic arm what i like is that there are various mysterious groups that are playing throughout the game including the illuminati and knights templar because they're always behind everything and I am playing this game now because I really want to beat it. It's my goal in life to beat Deus Ex, the original game, because I have never beaten the game. I actually never got past the first mission for a majority of my adult life and decided that this time playing, 
I was just going to murder everybody instead of sneaking around. Because I always sneaked around and then I would take like the weakest weapons and I'd try to like knock people out and try to do like no kill on missions and stuff. And I would always die. And then I would quit because I'd be frustrated. So this time around, I got out of the first mission by killing everybody with a pistol. And they were like, you murdered everybody. And I'm like, I don't care. I beat that freaking mission. So, yeah, so that's what I've been playing. Deus Ex, Game of the Year Edition by Ion Storm. Great game. Now, to roll into our topic of the week, it's going to be a little... I mean, ultimately, we're going to be talking about the Game & Watch. How did we get to the Game & Watch? The Game & Watch is a second-generation console system coming out after the Magnavox Odyssey. So video gaming was a thing going on in the real world. Um, but yeah. it wasn't as a thing as it is today. And there was not really uh, a lot of portable systems at the time. However, portability and video game are like a match made in heaven. Because usually when you need something portable, it means that you are traveling. When you are traveling, you are probably bored. Because you may be sitting on a train or waiting for something at at an event or in a line or riding in a car preferably not driving in a car you should not play video games while driving that's illegal so there really was an unlock there where portability getting video games into the portable fashion was something that would be very profitable to go kind of back a little bit in time to kind of how did nintendo get to making the game and watch which most people will probably recognize by the little figure, Mr. Game & Watch, who was the protagonist of many of the games on the Game & Watch, mostly to represent the interaction of the player to whatever minigame that he was playing or the game that he was playing. Yeah. So Nintendo, as we previously discussed, has a long history in the business of making things and doing stuff. Really, they started off as a, a card game company, like playing cards, in the year 1889 and got involved into uh, the toy market. They have they also got involved with running sex hotels. And really, Nintendo had done it all. And in 1980, they decided they were going to release a new type of electronic toy, which they really hit the nail on the head and revolutionized the gaming market. Because once again, portability, boredom equals video games. Nintendo had previously stuck their hands in the electronic gaming market uh, a number of times. They had released a a few arcade systems. In 1977, they released the Color TV games, which was a Pong machine for the home market in Japan. Uh, The Color TV games did fairly well, but wasn't necessarily groundbreaking for the company and sold about 3 million units in its entire life, which was from 1977 to 1983. They also had some other arcade games that they worked on, such as Othello and even mechanical arcade games like Skyhawk and Shooting Trainer, which were all games developed by Nintendo and made a lasting impression on everybody since it took us minutes to actually look up exactly <laughs> what they did and what they were since Zachary and I don't remember them, but and neither do you. Um, they what they they needed something to make them a household name for the electronic toy market. And Zach, why don't you tell us what they were going to work on to make them a household name? Seth, before they became a household name, 
there was a individual named Gunpei Yokoi who had worked as the head of Nintendo's Research and Development Division, or R&D. He'd worked there in the 1970s, and one day he was traveling on the bullet train in Japan, as one does. He looked over to a fellow passenger, a, a businessman, and noticed that that passenger was playing with a cheap LCD calculator. The passenger was simply pressing buttons, like adding and subtracting things, pressing equals, subtracting things again, smashing buttons in. What I may have done in algebra and pre-algebra and calc... Oh, I didn't take calculus. Physics and geometry. Mindlessly (laughs) passing the time uh, as the train made its way to its destination. And Yokoi kind of was enamored by this. Just this idea of a person who was entertaining themselves with something as simple as a calculator. Yokoi actually envisioned the idea that a watch could also double as a game machine. And he took this idea and he pitched it to Nintendo of Japan's president, Hiroshi Yamauchi, when they, um, when Yamauchi had actually asked Yokoi to drive him to a meeting. Now, funny enough, they didn't talk about this on the car ride. Yokoi was apparently silent during the entire car ride. It was when they got to the meeting when they were working with Samsung was when they had, um, he took Yamauchi aside and kind of was like, oh, hey, I got this idea and I want you to, play with it for a second now yokoi had pitched this idea yamauchi said sounds great let's go for it and said get to work and now yokoi went on to design the controls for the game in his original design he incorporated a single button along with what would become known as the d-pad for movement the d-pad design is kind of a single button as well in the shape of a cross and the way a d-pad works is it has contacts underneath the uh, north south east and west quadrants and when you push down a portion of that single button in that direction it makes contact with those contacts underneath the d-pad became probably the single most important part of his design because the d-pad to this day is patented by nintendo the so the 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 d-pad that you see on the nes the d-pad on the game boy the d-pad on the switch is the d-pad based on the design that gunpei yokoi had originally envisioned for his first design of the game and watch which wasn't even the design they went with when they created the first game but it was his original design that he came up with and so to this day when you see a d-pad that's that cross shape just know that a little money probably went to nintendo to make it look like that and that's why a majority of companies don't do that design yeah it's it's actually um amazing how the the thought of a button that has different contacts so that each push of the button in a different area of the button does something different leads to like this ubiquitous design that is everywhere right it's on my xbox controller has some sort of d-pad device it's not a cross it's like a circle with the um, raised plus sign but yeah i think at the end of the day like it's it's pretty cool that it's been like this is where it came from like this. yeah now the department that was tasked with developing the game and watch was research and development one and it was called research and development one because there were other research and developments so there was like research development two <laughs> they were very uniquely named and i was as- actually reading an interview uh with satoro iwata and he interviewed three individuals on the game and watch the original game and watch team and those three individuals 
were Makoto Tano, Masao Yamamoto, and uh, Takahiro Azushi. Uh, and each one of them had a different section of kind of like Game & Watch and owned different aspects of it. Kano was from originally from the creative section of the, the company. So he worked in like creative design. And he was tasked to go work over with Research Development One because they needed creative help. And he ended up not only being the designer for like maybe packaging or something that maybe he was most familiar with, but he he worked on designing the game. He worked on designing the character, Mr. Game & Watch. He worked on designing the faceplate that would eventually encase the actual screen. He did work on designing the packaging and pretty much anything that needed design work, he jumped in to help with designing it. And each of the team members all had really a blended set of skills and would kind of do kind of jump around from whatever needed to be done. Takiro Izushi worked on software of the program and he worked alongside Masao Yamamoto who actually was there for hardware help. So Izushi also worked on other aspects of the game including ideating on like the games, what the games would actually be, working on setting up vendors to work on the mass production of the game and even would go to do commercial shoots for marketing the product. Where there was a, a fun story where he said that the the programmers actually hid under a box in one of the commercials and played the game so the celebrity who was being filmed looked like they were playing the game and watch but actually the programmers were under the the box for an entire shoot time so we're talking maybe eight hours maybe more of being under this box playing this game and he said that the when he got out the, it was very bright <laughs> Cardboard <laughs> box for so or box for so long, and Masao Yamamoto worked on not only hardware but he also worked on programming. He actually originally came over from the Color TV game team and came over to work on the Game and Watch. At the time that the Game and Watch was being developed, hardware was very important. Because oh, if yeah. you wanted something to go faster, you had to get the hardware guy to get it to go faster. You couldn't write software to make it go faster. And beyond that, he he would also program and, and do software coding. The first game that they were able to release under the Game & Watch series... and. I think we should explain that the Game & Watch is not one console. The Game & Watch is a series of what we would call consoles or portable game systems that had a restricted amount of games on them. They were preloaded with games. Usually about one or two. One or two. I think uh, you could buy one today that has four on them. So they were just essentially preloaded with games. So if you wanted a different game than the ones that were on that particular game, the Game & Watch, you would have to buy a different Game & Watch system. But they were all still like Game & Watches. It was just like, it would be like if everyone, if you wanted to play Pokemon, you had to buy Game Boy Pokemon. And you'd have to go and buy that Game Boy specifically to play Pokemon. Versus where if you had to want to play Mario, you had to get Game Boy Mario. So same system going on there where the Game & Watch was just a series of console releases, which they ended up releasing a lot. And they release some today. Like, one is launching in November of 2021. It's still a, a product that Nintendo still uh, supports and works on. I think now they do it mostly for nostalgia reasons, but they did, oh, yeah. they did a lot of support for it. And the first game that they ever released was a game called Ball. And... Ball. Uh, <laughs> Ball was just a juggling game. 
You played as a person, Mr. Game & Watch, who had to catch balls as they were tossed from one hand to the next hand. Players would press either left or right button, no D-pad on this version of no. Game & Watch, to move the hands into the appropriate position. The system would keep track of the score and be able to switch into watch mode to tell you the time. Because you would game, and then you would watch, as in right. get the time. Now, the fun thing about the Game & Watch was I think Nintendo and those who were designing the game, the Game & Watch, wanted the Game & Watch not to just be a game. They wanted functionality for it as well. Since part of the original commercial for the Game & Watch in Japan, it ends with the tagline, it is more than just a game system, it is a quartz watch. <laughs> so like the quartz watch feature of the Game & Watch was like making it almost like a added bonus but like a, a value add because also if our listeners would remember the time that the game and watch came out people were not carrying around phones with them they were not carrying around cell phones that would tell you the time so you would either have to wear a watch or ask somebody for time and i remember as a child i didn't really wear watches so I would ask people for the time in like amusement parks to figure out what time it was. And sometimes they would show me an analog watch and I'd be mad because they showed it to me real fast and I wouldn't know what time it was and then they'd move on. But I was too embarrassed to ask them to show me the time again. But so it was a, it was really a good feature to be able to have a watch mode as it were. Yeah. So Game of Watch games, uh, for those who might not know, make use of what's called a liquid crystal display or as we like to call it, an LCD screen. Uh, liquid crystal is kind of a unique technology where you have a, a screen layered between a layer of liquid crystal and you could kind of light up individual sections of this display to show images. The liquid crystal display was previously used before the Game of Watch on things like digital watches or calculators. And actually it's still used on digital watches and calculators to this day. This means that the games don't really have graphics in a modern sense. They don't use sprites. They don't use polygons and stuff like that. What it is is they are static images that would light up one frame at a time at a relatively quick speed to give the illusion of motion. So um, you might have multiple objects moving, but you would notice it's kind of like one frame at a time where they're kind of, I'm, I'm kind of demonstrating it to Seth uh, yeah. on the screen where it's like one image moves then to the next position sort of deal. And very jarring. Yeah, it is very jarring. It's not it's not fluid like you would come to expect with um, maybe a Game Boy game. Now, following the ball game, there were a series of other Game & Watch titles that were produced. Um, starting off was the Silver series, which consisted of Ball as the first game, and then later games like Flagman, Vermin, Fire, and Judge. Uh, these were all very simple games. Usually they use either one, two, or three buttons for example, fire is you have a, a fire in a building and someone falls out of the building and you have to catch them so they don't die. That's fire. And then like um, vermin is you have to almost play like whack-a-mole where things are coming yes. up and you have to hit them coming up left or right kind of screen. And in fact, on the game and watch that is launching in november of this year 2021 they they're having a zelda game and watch that's going to come out with the original zelda games and a zelda version 
a vermin. That screen is an LED, though, just in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, uh, the Zelda and the Mario Game & Watch, which we'll talk about a little later, uh, use LED screens. Very different than LCD screens. They can do a lot more. After the Silver series, you had the Gold series, which had a few more simple titles. One of those being Manhole, which is one of my favorites. In Manhole, you have to prevent someone from falling down a manhole, which sounds very simple, but it's very addictive. What you do is your character is located like under the street and you have to like line up the manhole cover with the hole at the right time when a person crosses over it so they don't die. Um, That's what a lot of these games were. A lot of these games were like, do this thing so this person doesn't die. That's right. Um, <laughs> very important. I just had a, a thought as well. In Super Smash Brothers, which is where a lot of people may have learned about Mr. Game & Watch, Mr. Game & Watch is a character. And he is able to produce a number of different weapons and items, which he is generally equipped with in these various games. So like in Vermin, he has a hammer to hit the Vermin in Super Smash Brothers. He has a hammer that he's able to pull out. So that's kind of like if you ever wondered why Mr. Game & Watch has all these different accessories, it's because of the different games that he was involved in. Well, like one of the one of the attacks he uses is he pulls out a flag and that's from Flagman. So like they're all they're all these individual items from these classic um, gold and silver series. Now, later in 1981, the widescreen series was released, which offered more screen real estate while still remaining fairly small units because portability is once again key here. This series did contain the first of the licensed intellectual property Game & Watch titles, Popeye, Mickey Mouse, and Snoopy Tennis. I just like the idea of they're like, what can we put Snoopy in? Tennis. No, what? Wait, 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 wait. Is this one game or is this three different games? These are three different games. Oh, I thought it was Popeye, Mickey Mouse, and Snoopy playing tennis. No, that would be fantastic. <laughs> this is this is a game called Popeye, a game called Mickey Mouse, and a game called Snoopy Tennis. <laughs> these these titles were the first of licenses, and the licenses that Nintendo got were Popeye, Mickey. I mean, Mickey's a pretty big license. Mickey's and probably Popeye, the biggest license there. Uh, well, Popeye in the '80s was also pretty big. That's true, and Peanuts was actually bigger than I and, think we yeah. let on. So Mickey and Popeye, you did probably Mickey and Popeye things, and then Snoopy played tennis. I really think they should have made a Popeye, Mickey Mouse, and Snoopy tennis game. Maybe one day we can. Following this was the vertical multi-screen series. Now, these machines were fairly unique. Not only did the 1982 Donkey Kong Game & Watch title use the D-pad design that was part of this series, but they also were dual screens. So looking at them, you can almost think that they were maybe original concept for the Nintendo DS and possibly where Nintendo got the idea to put two screens on their Nintendo Game Boy because they're like, it worked well with the Game & Watch, so let's do it for the Game Boy. And it functioned in a way that allowed the action on the bottom screen to be able to move into the top screen and vice versa. So essentially extending the screen real estate. There was a model that followed shortly after in 1983 called the horizontal multi-screen, which, if you guessed it, it meant that the screens were next to each other instead of on top of each other. (laughs) Yeah. So they looked like books with screens being on the left and right. Another set of wider screen games were released in 82 and through 1991 called the New Widescreen Series, which were mostly games based on titles like Super Mario Brothers and Donkey Kong Jr. They also remade Ball 
which featured Mario instead of Mr. Game & Watch. It was called Mario the Juggler, um, but it's it's pretty much this ball. Now, in 1983 and 1984, a series of fairly unique designs came out. The first being the Tabletop series, which look actually really similar to Coleco, their design for the tabletop arcade cabinets that they created, which were a very similar um, idea. The tabletop Game & Watch series were small arcade-looking machines with little tiny joysticks and a single button. Around the same time, the Panorama series uh, came out. The Panorama series were kind of bulky-looking Game & Watch titles that had like a mirror that would reflect a color screen that was put at an angle to make the games look like they had depth to them, um, which sounds silly, but it was something that arcade cabinets were utilizing in the 70s yeah. um, and into the 80s um, and is, is you know, kind of a unique idea because it does give an illusion of depth and you can kind of layer things that way. They even use mirrors to extend screen real estate almost or making it what because I know the X-Men arcade game actually yeah. one of the cabinets actually has a mirror layered into it now following the panorama series there was the super color series which i didn't couldn't really learn too much about but they look ugly they look like literally they look like calculators um that have like weird they, they're not even fully in color they have like sections that are just like the, the plastic is just colored a certain color um so it's still a black and white screen but it just has a little color added in and around the same time as the super color series there was the micro vs series or versus series which you could play with multiple people so if you've Fun. ever sat looking at a game and watch game and said hey i want to play this with my best friend or my brother the micro versus series is the series for you because the way these worked was they had one screen and two separate tiny tiny controllers that were attached via short wires they look like very uncomfortable like you best be good friends with the person you're playing this with because you guys got to get close it's like the uh the original uh connector for the game boys yes they yeah they're like hey people only need a foot you gotta get cozy to play these games there's also the crystal screen series which i think is my absolute favorite of the designs when i learned about it they they are not very like unique in terms of how the game plays it's literally just the design that's unique in that they are completely transparent so the screen itself is completely transparent you can see right through it to the back um like through it so that if you put it up against like a light the light will shine through it looks awesome um they're also really small like smaller than a postcard they're 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 relatively small in size you think they were made for prisons oh they might have been <laughs> i know most most see-through technology of that time period was made for prisons that's right. In case anyone was wondering why we had a bunch of transparent phones and objects, it's because people in prison need to have them. Because people need to be able to see what people are storing inside their game and watch. It's the reason you can still get see-through uh, like Walkman and TVs from like Abercrombie and Fitch of all places. They'll sell see-through technology to this day because of the prison industrial complex here in America. The final official game and watch models are actually still being sold. Uh, the Super Mario Brothers 35th Anniversary Edition was released in November of 2020 and contains the full version of Super Mario Brothers 1 the 
original Japanese Super Mario Brothers 2, which is, I have to clarify, is different than Super Mario Brothers 2 that came out in America, and a version of Ball where Game & Watch's head has been replaced with Mario's face. Uh, these machines were unique for a variety of reasons. One is they came out in 2020, but also because they use LED screens as opposed to LCD screens. So they kind of function almost like little TVs or like what you would see on a DS or a Switch. The games also utilize ROM files and it's played through emulation. So you're not playing LCD titles that are unique to the system. You are playing emulated games on these tiny little machines. In November of 2021, we are going to see the release of The Legend of Zelda 35th Anniversary Edition Game & Watch, which will contain Legend of Zelda, Legend of Zelda 2, and Link's Awakening, again, as ROM files, and a copy of Vermin featuring Link's head. Um, so yeah, they're made for nostalgia's sake. Yeah, they're being released in 2020 and 2021, but they are still officially Game & Watch series machines to the point where they have Game & Watch serial numbers that are um, considered canonical to the rest of the Game & Watch series. So they, if you go to a list of all Game & Watch series titles, they are included because they are Game & Watch games. But yeah, they like as Seth mentioned, they are mostly made for nostalgia's sake, which is pretty much why people are getting them. But they do have watches on them. They do act as watches. And The Legend of Zelda will have an interactive watch unlike the Mario one where you can act as act as a like a screen just for anyone's reference the if you're interested in the Mario Game and Watch it's going for about 50 to 60 dollars on Amazon uh, so it's not like an unreasonable amount of money for yeah that's actually about of... the MSRP when it was released um, which is kind of funny because when the Super Mario 35th anniversary Game and Watch came out Nintendo was like we're only gonna sell it up until the day that they made some arbitrary day in March. They were like, we're only going to sell it until this day in March, and then we're going to stop selling it. And all these stores still have a crap ton of stock. So <laughs> they are like, like I went to a Target like last week, and they had a stack of them. <laughs> like, oh, it's not running out of them. So, I mean, I guess grab them while you can, because maybe in five years, they might be worth a little extra. But um, I'm not telling you to scalp. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. No, don't scalp. I'm just saying if you're interested, they're about 50, 60 bucks. Now, numbers. According to the, uh, once again, back to that interview by Satoru Iwata, the Game & Watch series sold 12.87 million units domestically in Japan during its production life and 30.53 million overseas units for a total 43.4 million units, which is pretty good. I was reading a story. In fact, it was so incredibly popular that the developers of the game would have to work storefronts at Christmas time in order to help out with sales. And according to uh, Yamamoto, he would be assigned a store that he did not particularly like going to because the person who ran the store was not happy at the speed that he was able to wrap presents at. So because he so he didn't want to get it like he didn't want to get yelled at because and he's the game developer and he's getting yeah. yelled at by store manager for not wrapping presents faster like it's so, so funny but they were able to actually kind of really interact with the, the actual customer of the game which was kind of cool now the original price for a nintendo game and watch system was 5800 yen uh or about 8264 yen in today's money which equates to about 74 75 dollars usd which isn't a 
true dollar to dollar comparison. I know we're just kind of backing into the money here, but it probably would have sold right around 75 bucks being that today the newest ones are coming out 50 60 dollars that's the msrp today it probably maybe would have been maybe a little i think that's probably about right in regards to what that would have cost people about 74 dollars of today's money since today it costs about 74 dollars of today's money and nintendo's pretty good with maintaining their prices at uh, kind of like a certain standard. I actually tried to find so the original Game and Watch ball game when it came to America was not released under the Game and Watch brand. It was released under a Timeout brand, and the game wasn't called Ball; it was called Toss Up. So it was Timeout Toss Up instead of Game and Watch Ball. It was difficult to kind of track that information back because of like figure out sales and pricing for that back because there was a, it's difficult to find information on that particular subset of product. So if you want to buy one of those original ones, I think those are selling for about eighteen hundred bucks on eBay. So wow. So yeah. So uh, which I think for seventy five bucks for three, one or two games, maybe even three games. I I think is it. De- I think it depends on who you are as a person. Um, I guess and how much money you have. That's it is a lo- lot of money. And one of the developers who was working at a store got to saw that as there was a little girl who wanted to get a game and watch system, and. Uh, they really, the family couldn't afford to buy that system is the one thing she wanted. I don't know if that story has a happy ending, but now you know that there's a story of a, a little girl yeah, wanting that's depressing. a Game & Watch. Well, I think in, in comparison, though, the Game & Watch was considered affordable compared to buying something like a Nintendo Entertainment System when that came out or when the Game Boy came out. The Game & Watch was certainly still affordable compared to the Game Boy. Um, so... Um, when the Game Boy came out and Game & Watch was still available in some places, I'm sure some people defaulted to buying Game & Watch games because they were significantly cheaper than the Game Boy was um, for, for some individuals. Uh, very similarly, here in the United States, people who are familiar with video games here back during that time period may remember the series of Tiger Electronic games, which are very similar to Game & Watch titles, but they were made by Tiger Electronics. So Tiger Electronic games were very similar to Game & Watch games, though um, they were not made by Nintendo. But Tiger Electronic games were really made to capitalize on the success of portable gaming in the late 80s, early 90s, and were LCD screen games that contained one game per unit. And they usually sold for not too much money. With games, there was always people trying to capitalize on something that's successful, but also making sure that it's available to people who might not be able to afford the big thing um, by releasing something that's a little less expensive, but maybe not as good. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was just thinking to myself, I was like, man, if I got an LCD game as a child, I'd been pissed. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I mean, I think Game & Watch (laughs) was different because Game & Watch were fun, but with Tiger Electronics, I am like 90% certain I had friends who like wanted a Game Boy, but got a Tiger Electronics game for Christmas and they were ticked off. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that I got a Tiger Electronics game for christmas when i wanted a game boy or uh no we got the game gear that required four thousand batteries yeah they do like i feel like lcd game technology kind of fell off a cliff when it came to um like after the what's the 90s and game boy and like evolution of nintendo's portable game systems regardless that's our game and watch episode so i wanted to go over our byway pass segment as that's the segment that falls at the end um so I'm going to go first, and then Zach's going to go second. 
I thought you were so, going to like say something because the way you're wording that made it sound like you're going to be like, I wanted to do this, however. Um, but you just worded it really weirdly, I think. Yeah, that's because I'm a weird guy. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about uh, my game that I'm excited about by waiting or passing is a game called Road 96. Road 96 is being developed and published by a, game, a company called DigiXArt. D-I-G-I-X-Art. And they are creating this game where you play as a hitchhiker and you're working your way to cross a border from the country that you're in, which is not necessarily great, to another country, which maybe have more freedoms. And it's a um, kind of like a an interesting take on a adventure RNG game. So how the game plays is that you have 140 something miles to the border. You play your journey through segments, and each of those segments make up a portion of your journey, but they're all RNG'd, so they're randomly generated to you. So there's different people you may encounter, but you won't necessarily encounter them in the same order or at all on a second playthrough. And so like, for example, I was playing the demo, since Steam ran a demo week, uh, I was playing the demo of the game, and I started and I was in a sidecar with these guys named Sam and Mitch, and they were bank robbers. And I had no real context of why I was hitchhiking with them. I just was hitchhiking with them. And at the, some point in time, the police came upon us, and I had to throw money at the police to keep the police away. And, you know, I was talking to them, and there's different things that I could say about them, and that impacted future gameplay. And then uh, the next segment, I ended up at a gas station and I ended up pumping gas for this guy because he was going to call the cops on me. And instead, I was going to have to work for him. So I had to pump gas. And uh, yeah, so it's it's really unique in regards to a a game. And I I really like how they're structuring it. And and it says that no one's no one's road is the same. So it's all going to be like, so there's going to be a lot of replayability to the game. So I'm very excited for it. It is going to come out this summer, apparently. Uh, So I'm going to wishlist it and I'm going to put it down as a buy. Zach, what about you? The game or rather games, because they're being bundled together in one release, that I'm excited about playing are Zombies Ate My Neighbors in Ghoul Patrol. Uh, this is coming, actually, this came out already on June 29th, 2021. So not too long ago, but in the future as recording of this episode. Uh, the game is being produced by .emu. It was originally developed by LucasArts and published by Konami way back when, but uh, this is a modern re-release version of the 16-bit games that were available for the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. Uh, I love Zombies Ate My Neighbors. I haven't really played Ghoul Patrol. I think it's actually kind of an uncommon game, so I don't think I've played it. But Zombies Ate My Neighbors is one of like a quintessential memory of playing the Super NES emulator that Seth downloaded and threw onto a CDR that I think he lent me back when he went to college for the first time. Um, and like, I just played this this game a bunch and I loved it. It was so hard at times, but it was so fun. And it looks really cool that they're finally bringing it to modern consoles. So it's going to be available on PC. It's going to be available, I believe, on Switch and also on like PS4 and such. Personally, I am very excited. And the only reason I'm going to say I'm going to put it as a wait is because I'm not entirely sure what I want to get it for, <laughs> which sounds like a like a silly problem to have. 
but I don't know if I want to get it for my Switch so that I can play it on the go. I don't know if I want to play it on my PS4 because then I can just like sit in bed and enjoy it. I mean, I could do that with my Switch, but I can't do it with the big screen because I have a Switch Lite. Or do I want to play it on my computer? And if I get it for my computer, there's really no point because I can already download the ROM and play it on my computer. So it's like all these different options. I'll probably yeah, end up getting it for the Switch because having it for a portable sounds fun. I love Zombie Ate My Neighbors, so... You see Limited Runs doing a release, too. And I did see Limited Run is doing a release. I love Limited Run games. I don't know if I'll grab the Limited Release. Maybe I'll grab it if it's at PAX. Sometimes I know they have leftovers. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I love Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Haven't played Ghoul Patrol, but I'm willing I'm willing to give it a shot. So uh, that is due out June 29th, 2021. And uh, I'll put it down as a wait. Maybe by then I'll decide what system I want it on. And maybe then it will be a recently played and if you are interested in getting the limited run edition of the game, uh, the pre-orders close on Sunday, July 18th of this year. So uh, head on over to limitedrun.com, limitedrungames.com and check it out there. You can get the pre-order. I will take us away now, Seth, to how people can listen to our podcast if they don't already. Contact us or support us and support us both. Let's say you have some friends, right? And you tell those friends about Classic Gaming Brothers because you are supporting us. Because one way to support us is to tell your friends. But let's say you're telling your friends, hey, I listen to this great podcast called Classic Gaming Brothers, and I want you to listen to it too. And those friends then say, well, so-and-so, how do I listen to the podcast? What you tell them is they can listen to it on any of the podcasting applications that are out there. We are available on all of the podcasting applications that I am aware of. We are also available to listen to on our website, ClassicGamingBrothers.com. Now, let's say your friend has this podcasting application that they use and they love and they're like, well, I want to listen to it on this one, but they're not there. Well, here's the here's here's the deal. Let us know. You can send us an email, classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com, or you can go to our website and go to the contact form, and you can let us know that we are not on that application, and we will try our best to get on that application. That's a classic gaming promise. But that easily segues into how to contact us, because you can contact us via our website, you can contact us via our email, or you can contact us via our social media Classic Gaming Brothers on Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers on Instagram, CG Brothers Pod on Twitter. Follow us on those, and you can send us messages on those if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. It's really great for people to get in touch with us because we love to hear from our fans. We really want to hear from you and hear any critiques or comments that you might have or suggestions for episodes that you're interested in. Now, doing that, following us, liking us, doing all those things would be another way to support us. So supporting us is very easy. Like our podcast, share our podcast, rate our podcast on iTunes, review our podcast on iTunes if you haven't already, ring bells, do all those things. That is how you support us because our support is solely based on your enjoyment of the podcast. Um, You know, we don't ask for any money. Uh, We don't have a Patreon. We don't do any of those things because Seth and I believe that this podcast is going to come out on Sundays, and there will never be uh, a pay restriction behind the episodes. You will always get Classic Gaming Brothers content as long as you are subscribed to us, as long as you enjoy us. So if you want to support us, feel free to let us know by sharing the podcast with your friends, 
liking it, ringing bells, doing all of those things so we know that you like the podcast. Also, uh, again, be sure to rate us on iTunes and such because I heard that's a really good way to support us. Um, We do have a store, so you can give us money if you would like. Um, Our store has recently been updated. We have some new shirts available. Um, So feel free to jump onto our uh, website and pick up one of our new shirts. I think they're really funny. They have like our face on a, like our design on a cartridge, like a Super Nintendo or a uh, NES cartridge. And uh, yeah, definitely take a look at them. If you like the shirts, you grab one. That's great. If you don't like the shirts, don't grab one. That's also great. But that's how you can listen to us, contact us, and support us. And that's everything. Oh, unless I forgot something. Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. That's right. I, I, I just I just did the right at the end. I'm You're right, at, right the at the end. end. I am always right at the end. That's what they say. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that.